Hello and welcome to The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. I'm very excited to share with you this episode of The Herb Walk where I interview and have a discussion with Ethan Russo, board-certified neurologist, psychopharmacology researcher, and author. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Russo several years ago at a medical cannabis conference in Arcata, California. And after knowing about him and actually hearing him speak in Europe in the early 2000s, um, I was so thrilled to learn that Dr. Russo was a plant person. And unlike a lot of people in this cannabis space who really only seem to care about one plant, and that being cannabis, he really has an affinity towards all plants and working with the synergy of cannabis with other herbs. And I'm just very, very honored to know him and to have him on the podcast. So please enjoy this episode of The Herb Walk, where I interview Dr. Ethan Russo. I'm here with Dr. Ethan Russo. Dr. Russo is a board-certified neurologist, psychopharmacology researcher, and the author of over 50 peer-reviewed research journal articles and seven books. Dr. Russo was also the senior medical advisor for GW Pharmaceuticals during the Epidiolex and Sativex trials, medical director for Phytex, a biotechnology company, and now he has started his own company, Credo with the mission to um, apply components of the cannabis plant to balance the endocannabinoid system, as well as identify markers of the endocannabinoid system dysregulation for the treatment of disease. Welcome to the Air Block, Dr. Russo. I appreciate you being here with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so I know a lot of people know your background, but for those of, of our listeners that may have heard about you, but don't know how you actually transitioned from having a clinical neurology practice to researching cannabis. Um, can you give, give us a brief background on how you made that transition? Uh, sure. So um, I am board certified as a neurologist with special qualification in child neurology. I was in practice in Missoula, Montana for 20 years, but along the way, um, I really uh, became disillusioned with the kinds of results I was getting with conventional medicine in my patients, um, really using more toxic drugs with less and less benefit. So about 1990, I turned back towards uh, childhood interest in medicinal plants. Uh, that led me to take some Spanish classes at night once a week for a year and a half. Um, because I was interested in studying how indigenous people use psychoactive drugs, particularly for treating migraine. So in 1994, I had my first trip to the Amazon in Peru briefly. And then in 1995, I took a sabbatical in the rainforest and worked with the Machigenga tribe in Parque Nacional del Manu, 
in southeastern Peru in the Amazon uh, for two and a half months. Uh, we documented some 500 medicinal plants that they utilized, including many uh, for treating headaches and that were otherwise uh, psychoactive. Um, by then, uh, when I got back, it was 1996, uh, Prop 215 was happening in California and I quickly became embroiled in the cannabis controversy. Uh, and I made attempts to get formal approval for doing studies of cannabis and migraine, uh, but I was stonewalled uh, by the federal government. I'm afraid the situation isn't too much different to date, but along the way, uh, I became fascinated with cannabis and the endocannabinoid system, and uh, eventually it became my career. I uh, began work with GW Pharmaceuticals the year they began in 1998 as a consultant and came on full-time with them uh, in 2003 for the next 11 years, uh, as you mentioned, during development of the Sativex and Epidiolex programs. Um, so uh, that's in, an, in a nutshell. Uh, people think of me in relation to cannabis, but I've always retained uh, an interest in ethnobotany and other medicinal plants and have occasionally been able to write about those. And, you know, that's actually one reason why I was so excited when I got to meet you a few years ago, because you were a plant person and not just, you know, somebody who only cared about cannabis or only cared about, you know, one or two constituents in cannabis that um, I feel like you always try to throw in a little bit about other plants when you can, which so do I. So I always appreciate that. Yeah, well, it's, uh, again, a source of endless fascination to me and uh, that's why I've been doing this for the last 25 to 30 years. And I'm sure somebody, well, maybe they weren't actually, were you the first person to actually coin the term um, about the uh, the synergy between the phytocannabinoids and the terpenoids, uh, the entourage effect, or that yeah. was already out in other realms and we just hadn't heard about it before? Sure. Well, here's the evolution. In 1998, Professors Meshulam and Ben Shabbat in Israel described the entourage effect, uh, which is the idea that you have uh, certain soloists, we'll call them, uh, that have a certain activity, uh, and then they have uh, an entourage of seemingly less active or inactive um, players uh, but with the combination, we get a boosting of effect or synergy. Now, they originally applied that in 1998 uh, to the endocannabinoid system. We have uh, cannabinoid-like uh, chemicals that are produced in our bodies. Um, they noted a very strong boosting effect uh, between some of these other ones that didn't do a lot on their own necessarily, but combined with the main players to really produce fantastic results. The next year, in 1999, the same authors mentioned that this could apply to cannabis, um, but they pointed out that uh, the idea that some plants are better medicine than their individual components uh, was sort of theoretical. Well, more than 20 years have passed, and the idea of synergy of uh, different botanical ingredients is really an established fact at this point. Um, I just took the ball and ran with it, so to speak. 
Uh, and uh, certainly I have appreciated the opportunity to try and popularize uh, the concept of the entourage effect as applied to cannabis. I like to think of it as uh, traditional Chinese medicine in one plant in that you've got certain components that might be giving you the primary effect that you're looking for, say treating pain or spasticity or whatever. Um, and then you have other components that uh, make it a more acceptable medicine uh, by reducing the side effect profile uh, as one example. And other components may contribute therapeutic benefits of their own, sort of what I, I like to call uh, side benefits rather than side effects. And so it's almost like you have one, a complete formulation in one plant because they do have all of these, you know, side benefits um, because of the different terpenoids and cannabinoids and, you know, all of the other things we may not have even named yet. Um, so what's your opinion then on just how the CBD companies, because we do know there's this synergistic effect and a lot of these companies are using just isolates or distillates and People are showing, at least, you know, anecdotally, that they are getting some positive benefit from that. Um, do you have an opinion on those companies? or? Well, uh, you know, let's talk about the industry. Um, you know, there are, as you mentioned, a tremendous number of CBD products around. Um, you know, quality control has not been a hallmark of the industry, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, a lot of these preparations are very small amounts of CBD. Uh, I'm a big fan of cannabidiol. I've been studying it and writing about it for years before it became au courant. But uh, the thing about uh, CBD, despite its apparent versatility and safety, is it's not a potent molecule. In this instance, you need a lot of it uh, to really gain benefit therapeutically. Uh, so a lot of these preparations just have such small amounts that they turn out uh, possibly to be expensive placebos. Uh, and as you mentioned, many of these are sold as isolates. And uh, I'm fond of saying that there's nothing that CBD do does that wouldn't be enhanced by at least a tiny amount of THC and certainly other components, whether they be minor cannabinoids or the terpenoids. Yeah, I kind of have a similar idea about that. I just feel like a lot of people have, you know, it's an easy way to get into cannabis, to get into CBD without really having to, you know, touch the real plant or, or worry about the THC side of things. Um, but, and everyone's like, oh, it's this huge green rush. I've kind of been calling it the green greed, which probably isn't the most positive outlook. Do you find um, that there's, was there any reason for CBD alone to be its own product? You know, I mean, other than in like epidiolics, I believe that's just CBD, isn't it? Yeah, it's about 97% pure CBD and would not have been uh, the ideal formulation I would have chosen. Some of that was political. Uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration wanted to have nothing to do with the concept of giving THC to kids. Uh, irrespective of the fact that we were dealing with horrendously sick children uh, with Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome with very limited life expectancies, incurring hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical expenses a year. Um, that really didn't enter into the thinking. 
Um, but to answer your question, um, uh, no, I, uh, I think CBD on its own uh, generally requires very elevated doses. Um, to give an example from epilepsy, um, the studies of epidiolects have shown uh, that very lofty doses are necessary, some producing drug-drug interactions, although I'd be the first to say that that's been overdone. But because of the lofty doses, it makes it very expensive. Uh, Pamplona et al. did a study, um, admittedly, with observational um, examples of uh, CBD as extracts and the doses required to have what appeared to be equivalent results in treating the same severe epilepsy conditions. Uh, with the extracts, about 20% of the dose of pure CBD was required uh, and seemingly with fewer side effects. Um, so yeah, I mean, at best I'm ambivalent about it. Um, if you push me, I'd say that, uh, yeah, I, I don't favor uh, CBD as a sole uh, agent uh, for these reasons. Uh, it can always be better. And I'd extend the argument to say that most studies of cannabis or cannabis-based medicines uh, have been performed with unoptimized uh, preparations. So, uh, Admittedly, there have been some good results, but I always think that they could have been better. Uh, and with many negative results that have been documented, uh, we know that patients out there, particularly using herbal forms of cannabis, seem to do a lot better. And it's not all in their heads, uh, or there wouldn't be such a craze uh, about this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you kind of mentioned it. The I mean, I feel like in you, you know way more about research, obviously, um, but it's like 20% of the time, the placebo effect works anyway. So there could just be a huge placebo effect going on with, with CBD. And then you add in the fact that it's expensive. So people want to really believe that it's working for them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Uh, the placebo effect in medicine is making it extremely difficult uh, to show a clear demarcation of a drug that really should work uh, versus uh, placebo. And that's particularly an acute problem in cannabis-related uh, research because, rightly or wrongly, uh, there is this cachet out there about cannabis being a, a miracle drug. Uh, so people in a clinical trial um, are always going to hope or think that they're on the real thing, um, and this boosts placebo effects. Uh, so it's gotten extremely difficult. Now, as a researcher, how do you deal with that, especially when there are so many variables when you're doing a research project anyway? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've taken a stance now that I won't be involved in any more studies with a preparation that I don't think is optimized, uh, you know, has the greatest chance of success to do the job clinically uh, and be an acceptable preparation. Uh, we also have the problem of, you know, if it's overtly psychoactive and the placebo is nothing, um, people can sometimes tell uh, what they're getting and what they're not. But there are ways to deal with the placebo effect. Briefly, one would be you keep it straight down the middle of the road. What I mean is that um, uh, 
you need to do tell each patient, look, we're going to try this medicine. It could work. It might not work. We're just going to see. That's what it's about. It should not be veiled in the kind of narrative that, oh, we have this wonderful new thing we're trying uh, in this trial. And um, you could get that or you could get the placebo. Well, again, that just contributes to the expectation that um, they should have or do have the miracle drug. Um, so setting expectations uh, is a big one. Uh, second is you shouldn't complicate the trial. There have been some studies of cannabis that have done been done in clinics where people might get the cannabis. They might uh, get a placebo, but they also get a free massage and a consultation with a friendly local herbalist. So these ancillary benefits have been shown to complicate uh, things and increase placebo effects because everybody looks forward to going to the clinic, uh, whether they're on the real stuff or not. The third thing is some clinical trial designs. Um, the pivotal trial of Sativex that showed uh, its benefit in treating spasticity and multiple sclerosis was done with a randomized withdrawal design. Now, this is tricky, but what happened was patients were told you're going to get Sativex at some point, but they weren't told when. Unbeknownst to them, everyone got Sativex for the first month. And at the end of the month, they just took the patients that had shown benefit in treating their spasticity, a reduction of muscle tightness. And uh, they came in for a resupply visit where half of them continued on the same number of doses, sprays of Sativex in the mouth a day. Uh, and the other half were switched over to placebo with instructions to use the same number of sprays in the mouth a day. At that point, there was a big divergence in effect. And so they ended up with spectacular, um, what we call probability values, uh, showing the clear benefit of Sativex over placebo. Um, so that's not foolproof either, but it is a way of trying to reduce expectation and placebo effects. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard of a trial that actually gave everybody the drug at first and then did the placebo effect. I think that that is an interesting way to do it and probably gives you a little better baseline to start with. Sure. Um, my personal bias is we need to move beyond uh, the placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trials. Um, it's, it's proven to be faulty. Uh, it doesn't really mirror how drugs are used in practice. Uh, I prefer what's called an N of one approach. Uh, this means that um, you have different uh, testing parameters. Uh, the early studies with Sativex, for example, actually involved um, a high THC extract, a high CBD extract, the two together, what we call Sativex now, and placebo. And people were randomly cycled through two-week blocks of using each with close uh, follow-up on how they were doing with their symptoms and their sleep, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it really provided uh, more of a real-life experience. Um, I can tell you as a physician, particularly in neurology, where lots of drugs don't work, um, it was a matter of um, Mrs. Smith has chronic pain um, we give her something, in a month we come back, 
that didn't work, so we try something else. Um, uh, like it or not, even modern medicine consists of a tremendous amount of trial and error. Uh, and the same applies to cannabis-based medicines. Uh, one type of preparation may work for one person, uh, but not work for another. And uh, this certainly has something to do with people's internal milieu, what we call the endocannabinoid tone, uh, which is something we can't easily measure right now with available techniques. Um, so um, it requires this experimentation. Um, and it's not always the first thing out of the chute that is going to prove to be the most acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you're, as you're talking, it makes me think about, you know, all the, you know, mushrooms and MDMA and ayahuasca and all the other things that they're doing a lot of research and a lot of trials with. Um, and I'm not familiar with how they're doing those trials, but I believe some of them at least include some sort of therapy that goes along with it. Are you familiar with any of those trials or, or have anything oh, yeah. you want to share about them? Well, uh, it's clear, uh, particularly when psychedelics are being used uh, in end-of-life care, um, that uh, it, it needs to be combined with, uh, uh, again, a therapeutic milieu. In this instance, uh, experience guides uh, that can help people integrate their experience, which is just overwhelming. Um, and certainly can be a terrible experience if it's not uh, properly controlled. Um, but the combination uh, of what the drugs do with this integrative uh, therapy um, can produce phenomenal results in people's adjustments uh, to severe and terminal illnesses. And then uh, the things we don't understand yet, like how uh, some of these medicines can be associated with long-term uh, freedom from addiction. Um, uh, we know a little bit about what they're doing to certain neurotransmitters, especially serotonin in the brain, but how they do this on a long-term uh, basis is really unclear at this point, uh, even though people have examined the issue for decades. Yeah, and I think it's a great place where it's going. You know, I've heard a lot of people because of all of the research, you know, really afraid that big pharma is going to take over cannabis and, you know, basically take over all of our, um, you know, plant substances, whether they be psychoactive or not. Where well, do you see this going in the future? Do you find, do you think big pharma is going to take it over or do you think it's going to be more like a supplement industry where it's slightly still unregulated? Well, I, you know, it's an important question, but they've, always been three echelons of activity in this realm. And I believe that they will continue. So we have the pharmaceutical developments related to cannabis so far with two preparations, a set of X and epidiolects. There could be others, but other companies haven't figured out how to do it quite right. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the other echelon uh, is uh, the supplement industry. So these may be somewhat standardized products uh, that don't have specific medical claims, but may have stru structure activity uh, benefits. Um, and then the third echelon is herbal uh, treatment. And again, 
not everyone has the benefit of having Jessica Baker at their disposal uh, to tell them what kinds of herbs they, they need. But uh, this is uh, an obviously therapeutic modality uh, in and of its own. Now, the mistake that I think people make is um, supposing that one echelon here, either the herbal supplement or pharmaceutical can eliminate the others. It hasn't happened, it won't happen, it shouldn't happen. And I've got a foot in each of the three camps. So <laughs> um, yeah, it means skipping around a lot. And obviously not one camp is better than the other. I mean, I know people want to think that that's true, but I feel like there's definitely validity in all of those. And I, and I do think we need to keep, keep all of them open and available to people. Um, you know, and I know with your new company, Credo, I want you to be able to talk about a little bit, but first I've got kind of an off-topic question um, because it is about chemovars. And if we're talking about researching and not just isolating components, but using, you know, whole plant medicine, what's your opinion on people trying to, you know, like find, okay, this is the sour diesel. This is, especially when every growing condition is going to have terpene and phytocannabinoid production that's going to slightly shift. Is there a place for trying to be chemovar specific when we're treating different conditions? Or is that just something that, you know, breeders hope is going to happen, but isn't actually realistic? You nailed it with your question. Um, yes, you can develop chemovars chemical varieties of cannabis, specific profiles of cannabinoids and terpenoids. Those are environmentally influenced. But if the conditions are kept controlled um, and sustained, um, you can have predictable results. And this is how Sativex in particular was approved. Um, it came from a series of closely related chemovars, either high in THC or high in CBD, grown under uniform conditions uh, and extracted under uniform conditions. And um, I have a graph I like to show in presentations of um, 25 different um, analyses of Sativex over uh, nine years. And it looks like single peaks. The, um, the variations uh, in the components are, are tiny, and that kind of standardization is needed for an FDA-approved pharmaceutical. Um, in the herbal realm, uh, we allow much more uh, variance, um, and for most supplements, plus minus 10% is considered acceptable, uh, but tighter tolerances are, are certainly possible. Um, so uh, it, it can be done. Um, is it always necessary? Maybe not. But again, for the highest echelon, if you will, uh, pharmaceutical approval, you need that kind of control. It can be done. And it's a worthy goal to have this selective uh, breeding for uh, components and profiles. Um, to me, that's the ultimate and has been a big focus of my interest over the, the last 20 plus years. Um, but it's not a simple thing, and it still is the case that um, the average person that goes into a cannabis dispenser is looking for the highest THC 
possible and not necessarily paying attention to what else is in it and what the quality of the experience might be. Yeah, absolutely. I own a medical dispensary here in Oklahoma right now, and it is a challenge to get people to care about anything other than THC levels. But I just took it off. I took any THC level information off the placards in front of the jars, and now it's only the terpene profile. Um, And whether people, they still just look at the name and they're like, oh, I know the name. I know sour diesel. I'm going to choose that. Or I know cookies and cream. I'm going to choose that. But I think, yeah, just taking THC out of the equation, unless we are working with like serious pain disorders or something like that, you know, I, I find, um, frustrating, but also so very necessary, um, as a, as a consumer and as a business owner, I, I just, you know, that's why I like talking to you. It's like, let's elevate the conversation people are having because we're no longer in prohibition and we can have a different conversation now. You bet. So I'll talk a little bit about Credo because I want to give, um, so, well, one, I'm curious because I know this just started. I saw your press release uh, back in October. And so do you want to kind of give us a little brief overview about what you're doing with Credo? And I believe your partner's name is Nisha. Is her last name Whiteley? That's exactly right. Yeah, so Nisha, Nisha has been in uh, working in the cannabis space for about a decade. Um, she has an agricultural background, grew up on a farm, and has a master's degree from Texas A&M. And combined with her experience in this management, uh, I think we make a, a good team. And we're also interested in uh, management of the endocannabinoid system. Uh, we also have a couple of diagnostic tests related to that, um, one we've completed, uh, basically we're looking at a rare disorder um, and um, uh, figuring out its uh, genetic basis. And uh, we have some interesting results that we hope to be publishing in the near future here. We're also looking at a very common disease that we think is related to endocannabinoid system dysfunction and uh, seeing if it has a basis that way. And if it does, it should really point towards a better therapy uh, for a really misunderstood disorder. Uh, we have a novel extraction technique designed to preserve the ratios of things as they appear in the fresh plant, uh, which is certainly not what's typically going on in the industry today. Um, and really a whole variety of things. Uh, additionally, uh, to support investigation, uh, we're offering a formula service, uh, both to supplement companies and the pharmaceutical industry, uh, if they help in devising preparations that are going to be optimized uh, for purpose. And those formulations, including other herbs or just cannabis specific? Well, mainly the latter, but uh, we've got one... Um, we're with one company that is uh, making very interesting combinations of uh, other agents uh, with uh, cannabis. And uh, again, always been an area of interest. And I see the wisdom of these combinations. Uh, again, always trying to attain that synergy uh, of the entourage. Absolutely. Um, and I won't ask too much about your novel extraction technique. 
um, with the exception of, would you explain a little bit about what, when you said that you keep all of the constituents more in the form of the flower as opposed, can you, what, what are the other companies doing that, that degrades that or changes the constituent makeup? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, number one, uh, almost all uh, of the work goes under the assumption that people are gonna smoke the flower. That's sometimes true, it's often not, however. Um, so drying and curing, we know immediately uh, eliminates about 50% of the monoterpenoid content. So your limonene, pinene, and uh, linol uh, often get evaporate um, under those conditions for a more pleasant smoke, but it certainly isn't delivering what was in the flower to begin with. So that's number one. Number two, then extraction may take place, uh, particularly CO2 extraction, which I like because it's so clean. You know, there are no residual solvents with possible attendant toxicity. But most people do CO2 extraction uh, in one pass, which is great at getting out the cannabinoids, but really squanders a lot of the terpenoid uh, content again, yeah, with something that um, might have a lot of sesquiterpenoids, but not much monoterpenoid content left. Um, so between those two things, you've turned what could have been a great medicine into one that isn't as good. Um, so yeah, those would be the two basic things, but again, they're not necessary. Uh, using non-solvent techniques uh, at the beginning, there are different ways of doing this. Um, may not always be uh, the cheapest approach to it, but if your interest is really in having uh, the optimal ratios as nature provided them, then not. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. I know people have a lot of extraction questions and they don't understand that so many of them are solvent extracted. And then if it's not done properly, then yes, you end up with a lot of residual. I mean, I've heard with CO2 extraction, it can, well, with all of the extractions, it can concentrate the pesticides in the product. So definitely want to make sure, you know, you're not using pesticides that are going to end up concentrating in your extraction. Right. Huge problem. Um, you know, and even outdoors uh, in some areas, uh, blow uh, it can blow in from neighboring fields. Uh, so even when people are trying to do the right thing, um, you know, it's a situation where to have the purest extraction, then it's necessary to have the kind of role um, and freedom from extraneous uh, influences uh, to grow in a greenhouse. Uh, but that uh, is more expensive too. It just depends on a level of control necessary and um, whether environmental conditions have to be standardized uh, as we mentioned previously. So we've got indoors, most problematic, um, greenhouse, intermediate, uh, better level of control um, outside, which is, is great, but again, you know, if your neighbor is, is spraying uh, with something you don't want on your material or there's a hailstorm at the wrong time, uh, it's, it's a real toss up. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember when Chip started his first soil company down in Salinas, and it was on a 100-acre organic farm, but across the street, they would crop dust with pesticides, literally across the street from this 100 acres of quote-unquote organic farm. And you're like, but you're spraying pesticide. I mean, the wind is blowing it over onto the organic side. Yeah, exactly. So that, was, that was when I realized that organic can still be grown by non-organic and still be considered organic. So I know I've noticed on your website that you, you kind of put in a little caveat about Credo and your concern about patented plant preparations, but the necessity with that. Do you want to talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. Okay. People have misconceptions about this. Not patent of species. So uh, some crazy people years ago tried to get a patent on uh, the plant uh, from which ayahuasca is made um, and totally disrespected the fact that this has been used for thousands of years by indigenous people, uh, ignoring their intellectual property, etc. That should never happen. However, if someone creates a plant with a profile that never existed in nature um, and say, you know, this has therapeutic properties, um, they should have the right to protect that and uh, be able to develop it. Um, now, as much as we might criticize capitalistic enterprise, it it simply can't be the case that you can afford to develop a medicine um, without some kind of protection for your creation. So my belief is that genuine original work uh, should have this kind of protection, um, but it has to be novel. It has to be specific. Uh, can't uh, one species uh, or the kind of things. So something that's genuinely new. So that is my stance. And when you mean generally new, do you mean somebody bred something be between two, you know, chemovars and bred those together? Is that what you mean by something new or something has been added into it that would not normally be there in nature? Well, in the, the latter, um, it, uh, it would be a combination medicine and you can't uh, generally put that before the Food and Drug Administration without tripling your work. Um, no, it has to be from one species. Um, but uh, as an example, if you have a variety that has 100% of a rare cannabinoid, um, never seen this before, it would represent a novel innovation um, and probably deserve kind of protection. Um, I see but, what you mean. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure what you meant by that, but that totally makes sense. Okay, and Jessica, I want to add um, that this plant is incredibly plastic um, in its genome. What I mean by that is bit to anything you want, but it takes time and effort and money. Um, but, you know, I'm against genetic modification. And with respect to cannabis, it's totally unnecessary. Uh, because whatever profile you want, you can selectively breed for uh, if you know how to do it. It's been done. It can be done uh, in the future. Um, and uh, we don't need to be irradiating plant 
what kind of freaks we can produce personally. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. I, I feel the same way. But, you know, there is a lot of misconception about, you know, patented medicines. And I, I noticed that at least a few, couple of years ago, GW Pharmaceuticals at least had listed, you know, they were applying for, I don't know, there were several patents on different plant preparations, you know, sure. based on, um, you know, liquid right. or, you know. Right. Here's how that works, though. Patent applications always begin with broad claims. Uh, again, a lot of misconceptions about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything else you want to share about Credo, um, like how people can contact you or any information if they do want to work with you and your team? Uh, sure. Well, just the easiest thing is uh, uh, my email is Ethan Russo, one word, E-T-H-N-R-U-S-S-O at Comcast.net. And uh, really, that's about it. Great. Um, well, I just want to spend because I am an herbalist and, you know, my podcast is about all herbs. And so what are some of your favorite herbs before we go, like that you like to utilize with cannabis or not? Just because I know I have a bunch of people who listen just for the herb part and not just for the weed part. Yeah, well, there's so many. Um, I think ginger is fantastic for a lot of things. Um uh, ginkgo biloba has always been one of my favorites. I used a lot when I was in practice back uh, prior to 2003. Um, things like John's wort uh, would be just as effective as uh, standard antidepressants. Um, yeah, so many. Um, and I just put in a plug for uh, prebiotics and probiotics. Uh, the latter aren't strictly plants, but uh, the prebiotics sure are. And um, having a good diet of those uh, essential uh, fibers uh, can make a tremendous difference in people's overall all health. Great. Thank you for that. Yes, the, the holistic approach. We definitely need more than just cannabis but and herbs. We need our prebiotics and our probiotics as well. Um, so do any last words of wisdom you want to share with people who may be budding neurologists or researchers or herbalists or yeah, you know, sure. business you know, owners, anything you want to share? Uh, these fields aren't mutually exclusive. I was a physician that was trained under fashion. Um, I uh, never reached the point of having an herbs-only practice, but it was absolutely an integral part of what I offered to patients. I think it worked out great. Um, and, uh, you know, my colleagues at the time, this is clear back into the 90s, thought I was nuts. But when they saw the results that their patients were getting, eventually they started sending people to me that were inclined in that direction. Um, so to me, medicine is an integrative discipline and requires all different kinds of inputs. And that applies to unconventional therapies, whether they be osteopathy, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I um, would urge everyone to have an open mind about what therapeutics really involves. Uh, and it's a more eclectic mix of these disciplines. Very well said. I appreciate that. And once again, I just want to thank Dr. Russo for being on the herb walk with us today and sharing his 
his wisdom and his love of plants and cannabis and just healing in general. So thank you for being here. I always appreciate talking to you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. enjoyed this episode of the herb walk with jessica baker to find out more about dr russo you can look him up at ethanrusso.org and also at credo-science.com i always thank you for listening please share this episode subscribe like spread the word on plant medicine in any way you can And as always, thank you for listening to The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. Mm -hmm.